from the heart of flyover country. He's not on the far right, and he's certainly not on the far left. Like you, he's somewhere in the middle. This is Dale Carter's America. Well, we're back with another episode of uh, the podcast, Dale Carter's America. I'm Dale. Kurt is with me as well. We're going to get into some of the news things that are happening right now. Um, Next week, we're going to bring guns back. We have to, and we have a special guest next week. We're still working on uh, the guests, but there we we have some uh, something planned for you guys. So stay tuned for next week. Well, President Biden um, in the Rose Garden had several executive orders that he's going to uh, put out there in an effort to uh, cut back on gun violence. Um, you know, I have my own issues on that. Uh, we'll talk about that probably next week because there's so much more stuff we need to get into on this week's podcast where we're going to talk about the actual Jim Crow laws. But before we get to Jim Crow or Jim Eagle or whoever we're going to talk about, let's talk about what's happened here in the last 24 hours. First of all, in Minnesota, not far from where George Floyd was killed last year, there is more tension, protests, a black man shot and killed by police. Authorities say the man was shot during a traffic stop Sunday afternoon. Details about the confrontation limited. Uh, He's since been identified by relatives as 20-year-old Dante Wright. Protests fired up in Brooklyn Center Sunday afternoon, continuing into early Monday morning. Many protesters clashing with police, several businesses being looted. Police say at one point shots fired at the police department, but nobody was hurt. Brooklyn Center schools are closed because of the protests, and classes will be held online. Of course, uh, what I would say about this, and I think you would probably agree with me, we should wait patiently until the facts come out. Oh, yeah. And if there are dirty cops involved, we should deal with that. There is dash cam video. There are body cams that the officers were wearing that, that I'm told were operating. So we're going to get a clear view of what actually happened there. And um, what I'll say every time is that if there are dirty cops who are doing things that are, are bad, if cops break the law and step over the line, they need to be dealt with. Yeah, it's too. It's still too early to tell, I think, with this particular case exactly what happened. Um, I haven't. I just read about it this morning. Right. Um, so, you know, we'll see. But, I mean, certainly for the the uh, race baiters and the activists and the, the rioters out there, they don't care about, no. you know, what actually happens. They so really they're going to um, go out there and riot either way. And for those, you know, who own businesses who had nothing to do with this, police officers who had nothing to do with this, who are uh, at the wrong end of a gun here uh, today, that's just wrong. Anytime you, you go from peaceful protest to committing a, a crime – you are, in fact, a criminal. You've committed a criminal act, and, and that's where the line is in this country. Always has been, always should be. Uh, I get that people are outraged about things, uh, but you can't cross that line to violence. Martin Luther King said that very clearly, and, and we'll say it clearly every time. Then we go a little further south to uh, Georgia, where one suspect is dead, three law enforcement officers injured after shots were fired during a high-speed chase in Georgia. That happened on Monday morning. The Carroll County Sheriff there said the suspects opened fire during a chase that ensued following a routine traffic stop. Uh, the sheriff there said one suspect is dead and the other is in police custody. There were three wounded officers. We wish them uh, well on their recovery. One is undergoing surgery at this time. Obviously, we record this on Monday, so there may be more details that come. But again, if you are a law enforcement officer, you have our undying respect. Those of you who follow the rules, the 99.9% of you who do, it's a tough job. 
And, um, you know, I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, and I would say one other thing about this, too, because there's another video that's been going around of uh, an Army guy, a veteran or a current Army guy, a black guy who gets maced by the cops in his car. I don't know if you saw that video or I not. I haven't seen that. So that one's going around, too, and I, it sounds like this case in Georgia, you know, involved um, some kind of conflict with somebody avoiding the police or, or you know, fleeing the scene or something like that. I mean, I, I know I was always taught this, and I, I imagine you probably were too, but when you're pulled over, it's very important to do what the police ask you to do. Absolutely. If they ask you to get out of the car, get out of the car. If they ask you to sh- put, you know, show your hands or sh- give them your ID, do what they tell you. Because a lot of times, in a lot of these cases, you know, you could say that maybe the cops uh, didn't act perfectly or did something that they shouldn't have, but a lot of times... Uh, a lot of this stems from somebody either resisting arrest or just not doing what the police ask. And it's just going to lead to more trouble. You know, if you think that they're doing something wrong, they're not in their uh, legal right to search you or, or what have you, that can be dealt with after the fact that can be dealt with in the court of law. But, you know, resisting or, or not doing what you're asked is, is just a recipe for trouble, I think. Well, I had my own interaction with the Blue Springs Police Department on Saturday night. I was involved in an accident um, where I was sitting at a red light and two vehicles that were going toward each other. One was going southbound. The other was going north. The northbound vehicle was going to turn left, like right in front of me. And somebody didn't get the memo. I didn't see what happened. All I saw was a car coming at my car. Uh, so it was a three-car accident where basically I just sat there and took it because I had, you know, what are you going to do, right? Brace for impact is what right, you do, right? right. Um, and uh, we weren't hurt. There was no one really hurt. Uh, the guy in the southbound vehicle was a little shooken up, all of his airbags deployed and everything. But the Blue Springs Police Department did an outstanding job. Central Jackson County Fire Protection District, they came. In fact, this guy's um, airbags all went off. They had to basically cut those out to get to him, mm. and I, he was really shooken up. Uh, but, you know, they did a great job, and uh, that's my interaction with the police. I did have one years ago. I mean, this is in the 90s. I was driving a Ford Mustang convertible, right? Nice. Had the top down. I'm going down I-70. Had my kids in the car with me. They, of course, were all seat belted in. And I got pulled over on I-70 by a state trooper, Mm -hmm. right? Now, I was going 74 and a 70. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people might think that's, you know, a little chintzy to pull somebody over for doing 74 and a 70 right and i got it was a little bit of a windy day i remember i got out of the car and i was walking back to him i had my hands in my pockets and he just like froze all of a sudden he said take your hands out of your pockets Uh yeah and it's like okay i'm here in my hands right you know i mean that's exactly to your point when you get pulled over if you follow their instructions you will not die right and and people don't talk about the flip side of the coin you know you see these videos and and you're like, oh, the cops, you know, are acting so aggressively. They're being assholes or whatever, you know, they're uh, pulling out their taser, you know, they're yelling at somebody. But you can go on YouTube uh, and there's plenty of shows and plenty of channels, you know, that you can see that there are so many times where during, you know, quote unquote, routine traffic stops, things go south very quickly. You know, somebody pulls out a gun uh, somebody attacks a police officer in a seemingly uh, benign situation during just a, a regular traffic stop, it can turn south extremely quickly and has many, many times. So you have to understand from the from the police's shoes too that you know they don't know what to expect. They don't know who you are. They don't know what you're doing. They don't know what your intent is. You know what your intentions are. So yeah. 
Well, Derek Chauvin is still uh, on trial in Minneapolis uh, as we speak, and uh, that may or may not be resolved by the time you hear this episode. Uh, But where I come from, just me personally, I'm going to have the back of the cops until proven otherwise. And if Derek Chauvin is found guilty by this jury, I mean, it looks bad, but there are two sides to every story. And I'm hearing both sides of that story. Um, If he's convicted, he ought to go to jail. He's already lost his job. Yeah, I think there's a difference between looking bad and what is proper within the law. Right. I mean, they're charging him with second degree murder. I don't think there's any evidence whatsoever that second degree murder is, you know, an acceptable uh, punishment, you know, for for uh, Mr. Chauvin. But we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens. All right. Uh, On to another topic here. Justice Stephen Breyer, who is one of the uh, liberal members, one of the liberal three of the Supreme Court, uh, he's 82 years old. Um, He gave a a talk about court packing and where he comes in on that. You may remember before she died, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, famously said nine is a really good number. It's a good working number. There is no fixed number in the Constitution. So this court has had as few as five, as many as ten. Nine seems to be a good number, and it's been that way for, for a long time. I have heard that there are some people on the Democratic side who would like to increase the number of judges. I think that was a bad idea when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to pack the court. His plan was for every justice who stays on the court past the age of 70, the president would have authority to nominate another justice. If that plan had been effective, the court's number would have swelled immediately from 9 to 15, and the president would have six appointments. You mentioned before um, the court appearing partisan. Well, if anything would make the court appear partisan, it would be that. One side saying, when we're in power, we're going to enlarge the number of judges, so we will have more people who will vote the way we want them to. Now, the Constitution does not lay out a number of justices, um, but nine has been the working number since around the Civil War. So, I mean, we've got pretty good precedent on nine justices. And Justin Stephen Breyer warning Democrats, remember, he's one of the liberal members of the court, against packing the Supreme Court as a way to undo the current conservative majority. Right now, it's 6-3 because Donald Trump got three appointments to the Supreme Court. Elections have consequences, and we're going to talk about that because the current election, the 2020 election, is certainly having consequences moving forward. But before we get to that, Breyer, the longest serving of the three Democrat-nominated justices, aired his views shortly before President Biden on Friday announced a 36-member commission to study the issue. We'll get to that 36-member commission in a moment, too. Breyer's 82 denounced the idea during a webcast lecture for Harvard Law School on Thursday, saying that it could undermine the trust that the court has gradually built. What I'm trying to do, he says, is make those instincts may favor important structural change or other institutional changes like uh, court packing to think long and hard before they embody those changes in the law. I hope and expect the court will retain its authority which was hard won, but that authority, like the rule of law, depends on trust, a trust that the court is guided by legal principle, not politics. Structural alteration motivated by the perception of political influence 
can only feed the latter perception, further eroding that trust. Mm. Those yeah. are the words of Justice Stephen Breyer of the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, that's very, uh, very good point there. Well, and you know what happened right after this? There was like a Twitter barrage from Democrats. It's time for Justice Breyer to retire. <laughs> it's all over Twitter. Right. Uh, they want him out of there. Um, and the reason why, and I've seen stories on this, uh, they're trying to go at breakneck speed because they are terrified that they're going to lose the Senate in the 22 midterm, mm-hmm. okay? And that would mean that they would not be able to appoint very liberal justices if there was an opening. Right. Uh, hopefully the Senate, if it was Republican, would work with Joe Biden in order to appoint someone, but it certainly wouldn't be a very left-wing jurist. Well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not really sure on this. There's not anybody on the court now that is uh, super old or looking to retire 82. soon, right? Is that uh, Thomas? Uh, that's uh, Breyer. Breyer's 82. Breyer's 82. Oh, okay. I don't know how old Thomas is, but he's up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what Trump did, uh, to his credit, the people he appointed are very young. Right. And will be there for generations. Right. And that's where this commission comes in. Biden announcing that 36-member commission. He calls it bipartisan. Um, I was watching uh-huh. Fox News Sunday, and <laughs> Carl Rove completely destroyed that. He went through all of the members of the commission and mm. talked about their background, who they'd given money to, right. and he said, what I come up with is four that you could call Republicans. Yeah. So four out of 36 is not yeah. a bipartisan commission. And Republican, I mean, what does that even mean anymore? You know? Well, it's true. He said one of the four actually gave money to a Republican and to a Libertarian. Is he a John Kasich Republican? You know, that guy's a Republican. (laughs) That's uh, the question that you're going to get. So, you know, it's a moot point anyway, uh, because Joe Manchin says he doesn't support it. Mm -hmm. And when you've got a 50-50 Senate where Kamala Harris would break the tie, if you don't have all 50 Democrats lined up, you don't Mm -hmm. get there. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a moot point that way. But again, I make the point that Democrats are in breakneck speed to get as much jammed through before 2022 terrified they're going to lose the Senate, and they only have a majority of five in the House of Representatives. Here's my thought on on all of this as we go toward the 2022 midterm. America is in what I call a Donald Trump hangover. There were people who loved what Donald Trump did, not who he was, but what he did in terms of policy, but they just couldn't stomach a second term for Donald Trump. So elections have consequences. Some of you who are listening to this probably voted for Joe Biden. And now you're having a WTF moment. And we're <laughs> going to have WTF moments all the way until that midterm as things happen. As the surge continues at the southern border, which the Biden administration is blaming on Donald Trump. Of course. How can they blame that on Donald Trump? I don't know. If they hit the reset button and went back to Trump policies, that surge would end. Yeah. Joe Biden, at every one of these debates he had with all of the Democrats who were running, basically said, come, open arms. We want you to come to America. And now he's saying, don't come. Yeah. At least don't come right away. But I I wanted to go back to uh, the commission on on court packing, because I think it's really telling this whole idea of like the commission, right? What I see that is, is Joe Biden is trying to appease everyone in his base at once. He's trying to appease his moderate base because in the past and we can drop this clip in the past he said that court packing was not a good idea and that we shouldn't do court packing i would not get into court packing we we had three justices next time around we lose control they had three justices we began to lose any credibility for the court has at all 
he said a lot of things that that are really coming back to, to bite him, and, and we yeah. of course got the audio tape on it, and we can do that. Yeah, and then and then the other thing is, you know, obviously his more left wing base wants him to pack the court, so he's going to make this commission to make people think that he is seriously thinking about packing the court. Now it's out of his hands. You know, he has the commission; he can give it over to them. And whenever anybody asks him, "What's your opinion on court packing?" he can say, "Well, we have a commission that's looking at it." He doesn't have to have responsibility for saying yes or no on this particular issue. So it's all for if show. He says, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Because if he says yes, somebody's going to say, well, hey, look at what you said, you know, earlier in your career when you were a senator about court packing, when it was convenient for you politically that you didn't want it then. Now it's convenient for you politically that you do want it now. If he says yes, and if he says no, then you know, obviously, the the left wing base is gonna is gonna freak out and screech at him. So, well, I wonder who's keeping score on all the lies too, because we heard how many lies that Donald Trump told, and and the lying continues from the left. Pete Buttigieg was on with uh, Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday, and he basically told a lie last week that if this two point nine trillion dollar infrastructure plan is is passed. And we can argue about how much of it is infrastructure. He's right about this. It's a bipartisan issue. Republicans, Democrats, and independents want to see the streets paved. You know, they want to see the airports fixed. They want our infrastructure to work well. But it's it's a very small minority of the money in that $2.9 trillion that's actually going to go to infrastructure. And then he said there would be 19 million jobs generated by the by the bill yeah i mean where do they get these numbers from that's well what I want he to got it from a study and wallace put it up and he said well the study actually says if we don't do anything 17.3 million jobs will be generated right. if we do it an additional 2.7 will be generated why did you lie to the american people yeah but even i mean yeah you're right that is that is a lie that is a mischaracterization but even then, I mean, even the idea that it's going to cr- create, you know, 2.7 million new jobs or whatever, I always wonder, like, where they get those numbers from. You know, it seems like they're pulling it out of their ass. They said that about the uh, about the Obama infrastructure package, too, and it and it tanked. It went down the toilet, you know. Well, I think we could, could agree, though, that our roads need work, our airports need work. I mean, we, we do need infrastructure work in this country, and it will create jobs. I'm just, it's not going to create 19 million jobs, and that's the number Buttigieg was called out on, and really his only response was, I could have been a little more precise. Oh, well, yeah, that that's yeah. nice. <laughs> now, here's, here's the other thing. You, know, you say that Biden's not responsible for uh, the Supreme Court thing because he's got this commission, they're going to study it, his hands are clean on that. What he is responsible for are massive new government programs with massive spending and classic liberal overreach, and then massive tax increases to pay for it. And I'm irritated with the Republicans, Kurt, because they're not making the argument that we've made on this podcast that when you take that corporate earnings tax from 21 to 28 percent, you are hurting the middle class. Mm-hmm. They, they just don't they don't get it because everybody they're buying into this whole thing of, you know, stick it to the rich guy, stick it to the businesses and all that not realizing that it's a pass-through for them. It's a cost of doing business that they're going to send on down the line to the middle class in the form of increased prices. Yeah, they're, they're, playing, on the, they're playing on the ground of the left. They're playing in the field of class warfare, and we need to reject that playing field, and we need to substitute our own. You know, I mean, it's, it's BS, as we've talked about, before in our episode on taxes and in, and in other um, segments as well, but you know, yeah, you're right. They're they're not 
presenting an alternative. They're not presenting the truth of what's actually going on with this. They're just reacting to the narrative that, you know, they just want to fuel the rich or make the rich richer or whatever. And they're saying, oh, no, we don't, you know, and it's just it's never going to work. Classic class warfare is what's being done here. And just know, I mean, you know, as we're coming out of this COVID thing, the absolute worst thing that you could do is raise the corporate taxes. I mean, Manchin says he would be okay raising it to 25% instead of 28%. But if you raise it at all, there are companies, believe it or not, that are going to look for a better deal out there uh, to move out of this country. In fact, you know, one story we haven't covered yet is Janet Yellen, the the Mm -hmm. new Treasury Secretary. She basically has gone to the world and said, what we need to have is a uh, basic world tax. Right. Okay, everybody agree on the same corporate tax. Mm you know, uh, to level the playing field so that we don't lose a whole bunch of businesses. Can you imagine how that went over in countries that compete with the United States? I mean, it's ridiculous. The way I see it is it's the way of forcing our crappy monetary policy on the rest of the world. I mean, let, let me put it this way. If we institute a world corporate tax rate, do you think it's going to go up or down? Well, of course, it's going to go up. Right. They're right. not going to say. They're not going to say. But they're like, not going to do it, Kurt, because they look at businesses that they want to attract to their countries. Whether it's like Vietnam is a great example of that—a mm-hmm. growing economy in mm-hmm. Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to attract companies over there. Right. Um, they're going to try and cut them a better deal. Right. You know, it's all about getting the best deal. Right. And if every country has the same corporate tax rate, regardless of whether it goes up or down, the point that you're making and that I'll reiterate is. That is a factor in determining where you're going to do business. So if given that all things are the same, Mm. you'd probably rather do business in the United States than you would in Vietnam, right? Because we have, you know, just a a better economy, a better society, things like that. But if, say, your cost of doing business is much cheaper in Vietnam than it is in the United States, you may be more likely to make that decision to go there or at least do part of your business there um, because it'll save you some money, you know. I just so, wonder in the powers of uh, in the halls of power in in China when they, when they saw what Janet Yellen was asking for how loud the laughter was. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's insane to to think that one country, whether it be us or anyone else, should be telling other countries what to do in terms of what their tax rate should be, and you know, it, it's it's all part of a, a push towards global governance to to some degree. I think you know, which. Uh, is BS. I mean, we should reject it at every step of the way. Well, it's going to be a non-starter. And as we get toward 2022, it's time to stop thinking about Donald Trump and start thinking about getting back control of the Senate and the House of Representatives. I know that the mainstream media tried really hard over the weekend to give a lot of coverage to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is still the carnival show. You know, he called uh, Mitch McConnell an SOB and and lots of other things like that. Cocaine, he's, Mitch. He's still talking about you know how he was ripped off of the election in 2020. It, it's time, honestly, for conservatives even to move beyond that. Let's get back to the Senate and the House, mm-hmm. and then let's find the right messenger in 2024 mm-hmm. who's going to get elected mm-hmm. and bring it all together in a unifying way. A unifying way that that frankly Joe Biden advertised, which he completely lied about. Oh, yeah. There is no unity coming out of the Biden administration. Right. None whatsoever. So we're going to move on to the topic of the day, which is Jim Crow. You know, they talk about with conservatives that certain things that conservatives say 
are dog whistles. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that before? Yes. Yeah, if you say this, it's a dog whistle. It means that, you know, you hate black people, you're a terrible person, mm-hmm. you're, you know, racist, bigoted, homophobic, the whole nine isn't, yards. Isn't that convenient? Isn't that so convenient that they just get to say, you know, whenever they want that this is a dog whistle well, for they racism? Have, right? You've heard that. <laughs> oh, no, I hear it all the time, but I'm saying yeah. isn't, isn't that convenient for them that they, they don't actually need any evidence of that being the case or us you know, or conservatives ever well, actually voicing that opinion, they can just say, oh, this is a dog whistle, and then, you know, everyone believes it. I'm going to throw this in. My friend Rick Rainey, who I went to grade school with, who loves you on the podcast, oh, by the way. Thank you, Rick. Yeah. Uh, Rick <laughs> lives in South Carolina now, and he looks forward to the, you know, the podcast coming out every week. So um, we keep giving them to Rick so that he has something to listen to. Right. It's good of us. Um, but he sent me an email with just a great comeback. If somebody calls you a racist, mm-hmm. right? Instead of because we did the thing on racism last week, and I told you that that's one of the things liberals do. They say you're a racist, right? And then as a conservative, you go, "Who? Oh, no, I'm not a racist. Right. I'm not a racist. I'm over here. I'm okay. I'm just going to stay out of the way." Um, Rick had a great comeback. Prove it. Yeah. What makes me a racist? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, I've 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 done the same thing, you know, uh, before. I've you know, show me one thing that I've said or done that you you can base that off of but right. it's uh, it's so far beyond that i mean like i said my response last week or i think you know maybe the response more people need to start doing is no i'm not a racist you're an asshole okay. because you know it's it's <laughs> it's it's just so that sounds like a t-shirt yeah right <laughs> yeah we'll start wearing that around in public that'll go well i'm sure <laughs> but we were talking about uh, jim crow and you talk about dog whistles i mean you know there is nothing that fires up the african american community more than those two words right it's like jim crow it's like you know if you've done something it's it's jim crow right and so president biden when he finally had a news conference man that thing was painful to watch mm-hmm. did you watch that yeah uh you know, he had, first of all, he had a picture book. Right. So he could call on friendly members of the media. Right. And then the book was tabbed. Mm-hmm. So if you ask a question about North Korea. <laughs> right, right. And he just, and he stood there and, and read it <laughs> verbatim. And he's still messed up. And he's still messed up. Yeah, he's Can still you imagine talk. Barack Obama doing that? Yeah. Can you imagine Bill Clinton doing that? No. Can you imagine Donald Trump doing no. that? No, well, I'm trying to t- talk yeah. about Democrats here. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can't imagine that. You can't imagine Ronald Reagan doing that. Yeah. It's like, you know, have your press conference, go out there and face the media with what you've done and what you believe. Mm-hmm. And if you need a picture book on who to call on yep. and verbatim things that were written by your staff that yep. you're going to hold up and read and mumble through and right. screw it up. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. We're in for a painful term here uh, with Joe Biden as president. And one of the questions that came at him was uh, the filibuster. And this was actually a quote on um, Barack Obama, who called it a relic of Jim Crow. And we have the question for you and the answer from President Biden. Regarding the filibuster, at John Lewis's funeral, President Barack Obama said he believed the filibuster was a relic of the Jim Crow era. Do you agree? Yes. And then Joe kind of doubled down on it. It's like, what does Jim Crow even mean? And um, he tried to explain it like this. I'm convinced that we'll be able to stop this because it is the most pernicious thing. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. I mean, this is gigantic what they're trying to do. Now, Kurt, I've followed politics most of my life, and I have no idea what in the hell he meant. Well, is Jim Crow or is Jim Eagle like uh, 
you know, an Eagle Scout? Is that like the upgrade from Jim Crow? Yeah, you know, I have no idea. You, you uh, have Jim Crow, and then you get your uh, your merit badge, and you, <laughs> you graduate to Jim Eagle. How does that work? Well, then, you know, we're in the realm of hate crimes. There, I mean, you know, you yeah, killed what kind somebody. Of merit is the, exactly. Do you get bonus points and a merit badge if it's a hate crime? Right. And what? And like the, you've said, is there a love crime? I don't know. We're off topic here. We're talking about Jim Crow. I mean, you're very young. I'm older than you, and yet I still know what Jim Crow laws were, and I know when they were abandoned, very rightly abandoned. Um, what does it mean to you? Let me just ask you off the cuff here. If I say Jim Crow, what does it mean to you? Uh, it means a system of legal segregation post-slavery leading up to the Civil Rights uh, Movement and Civil Rights Act of the 1960s. Uh, that had separate spaces for white and black Americans. Um, you know, obviously the examples are like separate drinking fountains, but we also had segregated schools. We had segregated department stores, um, segregated buses, you know, all that type of stuff. Um, so, which it, I'm going to cover here. Yeah. Um, you know, because the, the Jim Crow laws were a real thing. Uh, they came out of the Civil War. Before we get there, back to the filibuster for just a second, because I meant to say this last week and I forgot. Uh, I come out of these podcasts, Kurt, and I tell you, it's like, damn, I wish I would have said that, or I right, wish I would have right, said that. Right. You know, the filibuster, which they're all over now, they used 300 times in the last year against Donald Trump. Correct. 300 times, including Kamala Harris, who's the current vice president, Correct. used it against Tim Scott, the black uh, Republican from South Carolina who had a terrific bill on police reforms, yep. and she filibustered it. Yep. Joe Biden has used the filibuster. Barack Obama has used the filibuster. And to call it a relic of Jim Crow, I guess you Democrats would know. And we're going to get into that and where right. Jim Crow started. Now, we talked about in our, our racism podcast, we talked about what happened when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, the, the liberator of the African slaves, okay, he was assassinated, and his vice president was Democrat Andrew Johnson of Tennessee. Lincoln had chosen him to try and bring the country back together, right? I don't think he had any idea that Andrew Johnson was going to become the president of the United States. Well, that started Reconstruction, and from then through 1968, we're talking about the Jim Crow era, okay? Jim Crow... Uh, named after a black minstrel show character. The laws existed for about 100 years from the post-Civil War until 1968. Those who attempted to defy Jim Crow laws often faced arrest, fines, jail sentences, violence, and death. The roots of these go back to 1865, immediately following ratification of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery in the United States. They were strict local and state laws that detailed when, where, and how formerly enslaved people could work, for how much compensation. The black codes, as they were called, appeared throughout the South as a legal way to put black citizens into indentured servitude, to take voting rights away, to control where they lived, how they traveled, and to seize children for labor purposes. They weren't good. And it was a legal system stacked against black citizens with former Confederate soldiers working as police and judges making it difficult for African-Americans to win court cases, ensuring they were subject to the black codes. They worked in conjunction with labor camps for the incarcerated, where prisoners were treated like enslaved people. Black offenders typically received longer sentences than their white equals because of the grueling work, often didn't live out uh, their entire sentence. 
were you the one, and I may be misremembering this. If I am, you're going to edit it out. Did you? Were we talking about slaves in South America? Yeah, I'd mentioned that briefly. Right. Yeah. About how many more were sent to South America. Correct, yeah. And how they don't have these racial issues in right. South America. Right. Okay, that's a great point. Because in the United States, I think, and, and the thing, the point I'm going to make is that the reason that we still have these issues is because of what happened between the Civil War in 1968 and because of people like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton who make their living right. fomenting the racial divide in this country. Right. It, if, the, if the racial divide went away and we were living together in harmony, much like they are in South American countries, um, this would not be an issue. Right. Yeah. I think, I think you make a great point. A big part of it is, uh, is sort of the race baiters out there that are making this a continued issue. Like I said before, I mean, I'll expand a little bit on the point that you just mentioned. Obviously we still talk about slavery a lot in America. It's always brought up, you know, when we talk about these things and, uh, you know, obviously it, we have, a, we have a, a scarred history. Uh, we have many problems in our history that we have dealt with and that should be continued to continued to be uh dealt with you know as as they arise but it's not unique you know we don't we're not a unique sin in human history we're slavery, definitely not slavery's existed slavery, for a very long time yeah slavery for example you know existed throughout the world it was primarily african and arab slave traders that sold the slaves to the americas Many more slaves went to South America than they did to North America, to the what became the United States. For example, about 400,000, that's a, by best estimate, slaves were sold to what is now the United States. And about two to three million or so were sold to what is now Brazil. So that's the point that I made to Dale off air last week. You know, why aren't we, why don't we have like Brazilian, um, narratives you know like the mm. brazilian blm movement and all right. this stuff you know it's just an interesting thought experiment because i do think i think you make a great point you know jim crow has a lot to do with it that is a uniquely american thing although you know there's legal segregation in other countries to this day slavery continues to this day yeah so you know we're not talking about that but certainly it is something worth talking about as we are now but you know um i think a big part of it is like you said you know the people who continue to scratch the the wound and and peel off the uh well i mean if the if, band-aid you yeah, know exactly if, if we ever get to a point where we have racial harmony 100 percent of this country al sharpton will have to get a job and and so right. will jesse jackson he might have to pay off his six million in tax debt too it's, while he's at it yeah <laughs> but you know in terms of slavery still continuing when you buy your expensive um shoes that were made in china you know your i guess yeah. nike shoes or yeah. whatever um, there are Muslims who are enslaved in China mm -hmm. and, and they're making those shoes. And they're essentially using slave labor in, in many ways to produce those shoes in the first place. I mean, yeah. they're working for pennies a day. So, yeah. So back to Jim Crow, uh, and reconstruction. I mean, this is kind of a history lesson for those who don't know and just hear Jim Crow and say, I, I think that's probably a really bad thing. You mean Republicans, um, during the, again, we'll go back to the fact that it was implemented by the Democratic Party and Democrat President Andrew Johnson, thwarting efforts to help black Americans move forward. Violence on the rise, making danger a regular aspect of African-American life. In fact, if you're an African-American listening to this and somebody uses Jim Crow the way that Joe Biden has used Jim Crow, the way that other people are throwing that around, you ought to be greatly offended because nothing happening today comes even 
remotely close. And and I'll tell you my take on why those election laws are happening. It relates to the 2020 election. But back to this, uh, black schools vandalized and destroyed. Uh, bands of violent white people attacked, tortured, lynched black citizens in the night. Families attacked and forced off their land all across the South. The most ruthless organization of the Jim Crow era, the Ku Klux Klan, born in 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee, a private club for Confederate veterans. The KKK grew into a secret society terrorizing black communities, seeping through the white Southern culture with members at the highest levels of government, including the sainted Robert C. Byrd, senator from West Virginia, who Barack Obama spoke at his funeral. Yeah. I mean, I think you're getting to this, but um, maybe I'm jumping the gun on you a little bit here. But what do the Jim Crow laws of the South and the Southern Confederates and the KKK all have in common? Well, they were all Democrats. They were all Democrats. (laughs) And, you know, the, the narrative that will come from, you know, Democrats today is, Oh, yeah, those were bad Democrats, and they all became Republicans. They all became Dixiecrats. Yes, There are examples of that. Strom Thurmond is an example of that. But most of them were Democrats all the way to the end. Um, and there are, we, we talked about it in the Racism podcast. Um, the Russell Senate office building is mm-hmm. named after Dick Russell, senator from Georgia, who was an avowed uh, segregationists. We're going to get into a lot of stuff here this, uh, with this podcast, so buckle in. You're going to learn a lot about Jim Crow and what it all meant. Starting in the 1880s, big cities in the South were not wholly beholden to Jim Crow laws, and black Americans found more freedom in them. Big cities in the South being places like Atlanta, Birmingham initially, uh, New Orleans. Jim Crow laws soon spread around the country with even more force than previously. Public parks were forbidden for African-Americans to enter. Theaters and restaurants were segregated. Jim Crow laws made it to those cities. White city dwellers demanded more laws to limit opportunities for African-Americans. Segregated waiting rooms in bus and train stations were required, as well as water fountains, restrooms, building entrances, elevators, cemeteries, even amusement park cashier windows. Laws forbade African-Americans from living in white neighborhoods. And I know this for a fact. The first house I bought in Indiana was built in the 1920s. And when you buy a house, you get the title. You know, you see everything that's happened to that house. And there were laws forbidding its sale to African-Americans. And it was interesting because in the title, it says because of this civil rights law of 1960, whichever one it was, uh, this is no longer legal. Mm. But but the house retains it because it's part of the title, the legal description. So... um, you, you couldn't live in white neighborhoods, segregation enforced for public schools, phone booths, hospitals, asylums, jails, residential homes for the elderly and the handicapped. Some states required separate textbooks for black and white students. These are all Jim Crow laws. Mm. New Orleans mandated the segregation of prostitutes according to race. Wow. In Atlanta, African-Americans in court were given a different Bible from white people to swear on. And, of course, marriage and cohabitation between white and black people strictly forbidden in most southern states. Not uncommon to see signs posted at towns and city limits warning African Americans they were not welcome there. Can Mm -hmm. you imagine being black in the South in the Jim Crow era? No, no, I can't. I mean, it's it's really sad, you know, that that's part of our history, but it's 
it's something we need to learn from, something we need to talk about. And this is grown-up talk, and that's what we're doing on this podcast. These are things that you need to know if you don't. And a lot of the research for this came from the History Channel. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did a really good job on this. Um, There were some heroes. We're going to talk a little bit about Ida B. Wells. As oppressive as Jim Crow was, it was a time when many African Americans around the country stepped forward into leadership roles to vigorously oppose those laws. A teacher in Memphis, Ida Wells, became a prominent activist against Jim Crow laws after she refused to leave a first-class train car designated for white people only. A conductor forcibly removed her, and she successfully sued the railroad, though that decision was later reversed by a higher court. Angry at this injustice, she devoted herself to fighting Jim Crow laws. Her vehicle for dissent was newspaper writing. In 1889, she became a co-owner of the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight, used her position to take on school segregation and sexual harassment. She traveled throughout the South to publicize her work, advocating for the arming of black citizens. Wells also investigated lynchings and wrote about her findings. A mob destroyed her newspaper, threatened her with death, forced her to move to the North, where she continued her efforts against the Jim Crow laws and lynching. So Ida Wells, a hero in the Jim Crow era. Charlotte Hawkins Brown, a North Carolina-born, Massachusetts-raised black woman who returned to her birthplace at the age of 17 in 1901. She worked as a teacher for the American Missionary Association. After funding was withdrawn for that school, Brown started fundraising to start her own school named the Palmer Memorial Institute. She became the first black woman to create a black school in North Carolina and through her education work became a fierce and vocal opponent of Jim Crow laws. So there were heroes against the Jim Crow movement. Isaiah Montgomery is another one. Not everyone battled for equal rights within white society. Some chose a separatist approach. Convinced by Jim Crow laws that black and white people could not live peaceably together, formerly enslaved Isaiah Montgomery created the African-American-only town of Mound Bayou, Mississippi in 1887. Montgomery recruited other former enslaved people to settle in the wilderness with him. They cleared the land, forged a settlement that included several schools, an Andrew Carnegie-funded library, a hospital, three cotton gins, a bank, and a sawmill. Mound Bayou still exists today and is still almost 100% black. I mean, that's one way to fight the Jim Crow laws is to get away from them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if they want to do that, that, that's within their right, I suppose. Jim Crow laws moved into the 20th century, flourishing within an oppressive society marked by violence. Following World War I, the NAACP noted that lynchings had become so prevalent that it sent investigator Walter White to the South. White had lighter skin and could infiltrate the hate groups. As lynchings increased, so did race riots, with at least 25 across the United States over several months in 1919. That is a uh, period that's sometimes referred to as Red Summer. In retaliation, white authorities charged black communities with conspiring to conquer white America. With Jim Crow dominating the landscape, education increasingly under attack, and few opportunities for black college graduates, the Great Migration of the 20s, 1920s, by the way, not 2020, 1920s, saw a significant migration of educated black people out of the South, spurred on by publications like the Chicago Defender, encouraging black Americans to move north. Read by millions of southern black people, white people attempted to ban the newspaper and threaten violence against any caught reading or distributing it. The poverty of the Great Depression only deepened resentment with a rise in lynchings after World War II. Even black veterans returning home met with segregation and violence. So the Jim Crow movement migrated to the north as well. 
uh, not immune to Jim Crow laws. Some states requiring black people to own property before they could vote. Schools and neighborhoods segregated. Businesses displaying white-only signs. In Ohio, the segregationist Alan Granberry Thurman ran for governor in 1867, promising to bar black citizens from voting. After he narrowly lost that race, Thurman was appointed to the U.S. Senate. Remember, we didn't have direct election of the senators back then, where he fought to dissolve Reconstruction-era reforms that benefited African Americans. And after World War II, suburban developments in the North and South were created with legal covenants that didn't allow black families, and black people often found it difficult or impossible to obtain mortgages for homes in certain red-line neighborhoods. These were the actual Jim Crow laws. Now I want you to hear something that's kind of difficult to hear, and that is the inaugural address of George Wallace. I was talking to Tony Stevens, uh, one of my KFKF colleagues, uh, who's a little bit older than I am and remembered very well George Wallace. George Wallace would end up running for president, and he actually got some electoral votes. He ran as a Democrat. He was an unapologetic segregationist. This is a one-minute clip from his inaugural address in 1963. This was the Democrat governor of the state of Alabama and what he said uh, in his inaugural address. Today, I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to my people. It is very appropriate that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom as have our generation of forebears before us done time and again down through history. Let us rise to the call of freedom-loving blood that is in us and send our answer to the tyranny that clanks its chains upon the South. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. You know, Kurt, we, we often hear that clip, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Uh, but that's the end of that clip. And uh, the first part of that clip, I mean, it made the hair on my arm stand up when he talked about our Confederate roots and proudly standing where Jefferson Davis stood I mean, you know, that was 1963. That was the year I was born. Yeah, it was also 100 years after the Civil War, you know, after that we had already ended that conflict and the Confederacy was the losing side in case he forgot about and that. And it just <laughs> makes you wonder. I mean, it makes me wonder a lot how life in America would have been different had Abraham Lincoln not been assassinated mm -hmm. and Andrew Johnson, the Democrat former governor of Tennessee, not overseen Reconstruction mm -hmm. and did it with a heavy hand. Yeah, yeah. So we, we move on to the commissioner of public safety in the city of Birmingham because it ties in with George Wallace, a man named Bull Connor. Have you ever heard that name before? Yes. Yeah. Bull Connor uh, was the public safety commissioner uh, in Birmingham during the civil rights era. Uh, before returning to office in 1956, Connor quickly resumed his brutal approach to dealing with threats to the social order. His forces raided a meeting which was being held at the House of African-American activist Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, where three Montgomery ministers were in attendance. He feared that the Montgomery bus boycott, which was underway, would spread to Birmingham in an effort to integrate city buses. 
So he had the ministers arrested on charges of vagrancy, which meant that they were not allowed to pay bail, nor were they allowed to receive any visitors during the first three days of their incarceration. A federal investigation followed, but Connor said, I'm not going to cooperate. Shuttlesworth had led civil rights activities despite being threatened with violence. His church was bombed twice. He and his wife and a white minister were attacked by a racist mob after attempting to use white restrooms at local bus stations, which had segregated facilities. In 1960, Connor was elected Democratic National Committeeman for Alabama soon after filing a civil rights lawsuit against the New York Times for $1.5 million. He objected to what he claimed was their insinuation that he had promoted racial hatred. He dropped his claim for damages to four hundred grand. The case dragged on for six years until Connor lost a $40,000 judgment on appeal. Have you heard of the Freedom Riders? Yes. In the spring of 61, integrated teams of civil rights activists mounted what they called Freedom Rides to highlight the illegal imposition of racial segregation on interstate buses, whose operations came under federal law and the Constitution. They had teams ride Greyhound and Trailways buses traveling through southern capitals with the final stop intended as New Orleans. The teams encountered increasing hostility and violence as they made their way deeper into the South. On May 2, 1961, Connor had won a landslide election for his sixth term as Commissioner of Public Safety in Birmingham. As Commissioner, he and his administrative authority over the police and fire departments, school public health service and libraries, all of which were segregated, Tom King, a candidate running for mayor of Birmingham, met with Connor in 1961 to pay his respects. In addition, he asked him to refrain from announcing support for other leading mayoral candidate, Art Haynes, so that King's chances would be greater. Well, at the end of the meeting, Connor noted that he was expecting the Freedom Riders to reach Birmingham the following Sunday, which was Mother's Day. He said, we'll be ready for them, too. King responded, I'll bet you will, Commissioner, as he walked out. After a stop in Anniston, Alabama, the Greyhound bus of the Freedom Riders was attacked. They were offered no police protection. After they left town, they were forced to stop by a violent mob that firebombed and burned the bus, but no activists were fatally injured. A new Greyhound bus was placed into service, departed for Birmingham. The activists on the earlier Trailways bus had been accosted by KKK members who boarded the bus in Atlanta, beat up the activists, pushing them all to the back of the bus. The Freedom Riders arrived in Birmingham May 14, 1961. As the bus reached the terminal in Birmingham, a large mob of Klansmen and news reporters was waiting for them. The riders were viciously attacked soon after they disembarked from the bus and attempted to gain service at the Whites-only lunch counter. Some were taken to the loading dock area away from reporters, but some reporters were also beaten with metal bars, pipes, and bats. One's camera was destroyed. After 15 minutes, the police finally arrived, but by then, most Klansmen had left. Connor intentionally let the Klansmen beat the riders for 15 minutes with no police intervention. He publicly blamed the violence on many factors, saying that no policemen were in sight as the buses arrived because they were visiting their mothers on Mother's Day. He insisted violence came from out-of-town meddlers. The police had rushed to the scene as quickly as possible. The violence was covered by the national media. So, I mean, I could go on and on with this. But Bull Connor was a bad guy, mm-hmm. and the Democrats in the South did this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you know what I think when you're reading this, we've really come a long way. You we know, have, I mean, and that's <laughs> the point. We have come a very yeah. long way. Let's celebrate where we are and fix the problems moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's celebrate our progress and let's not pretend like anything that's happening now is remotely the same in any way to what Dale is describing, you know, in this, it's ridiculous. I mean, 
I don't know if you want to get into the, you know, the comparisons that we have now, not only with the filibuster with, you know, Major League Baseball and with the Georgia voting laws and right. stuff like that, but the the Jim Crow, uh, it's like racism now. I mean, we, we talked about racism last week. That word means almost nothing anymore. You know, I think Jim Crow, unfortunately, is becoming the same way. Well, to wrap this up, and we will get into the comparisons to the Georgia law, Connors, Bull Connors' brutality and violence against civil rights activists contributed to Ku Klux Klan and other violence against blacks in the city of Birmingham on a Sunday in September of 1963, the month that I was born, by the way. Mm-hmm. The 16th Street Baptist Church bombing destroyed a portion of the church basement, causing the death of four African-American girls. The church was known as the center of civil rights activity in Birmingham, the city and movement leaders had just reached a negotiated agreement on integration of facilities and jobs. The deaths of the children prompted Attorney General Robert Kennedy to call Governor Wallace and threaten to send in federal troops to control violence and uh, bombings in Birmingham. There was a light at the end of this tunnel. Things did get better, and that's why it just it offends me to no end to hear Democrats today using the dog whistle of Jim Crow laws. Right. I hear that, and, and I know my history. I've reviewed the history. We've shared a lot of it with you on this podcast today and, and know that it did get better. Uh, there were things that happened. 1948, President Harry Truman ordered integration of the military. 1954, the Supreme Court ruled in Brown versus Board of Education that educational segregation was unconstitutional, which brought an end to the era of separate but equal education. 1964, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, which legally ended the segregation that had been institutionalized by Jim Crow laws. And in 1965, the Voting Rights Act halted efforts to keep minorities from voting. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 ended discrimination in renting and selling homes uh, that followed. Jim Crow laws were technically off the books, though that hasn't always guaranteed full integration and adherence to anti-racism laws throughout the U.S., and so it's something we need to continue to be vigilant about. But please don't ever say that we're back in the Jim Crow era. And you want to talk about the filibuster? When the two laws I just mentioned, 64 and 65, filibustered by Democrats in the Senate. Yep. Yeah. And the only reason that those laws were enacted at that time is because northern liberal Democrats like Hubert Humphrey— engaged with um, Republicans to to get that done. People like Al Gore Sr., Al Gore's father, filibustered against it. Uh, We talked about Senator Russell, the Democrat from Georgia, filibustered against it, voted against it. Robert Byrd filibustered and voted against it. These were not people who all of a sudden said, okay, well, if you're going to go that way, I'm going to become a Republican because that's where I'm welcome. You are not welcome in the Republican Party if you believe any of this Jim Crow crap. Right. Yeah, and I mean, to to sort of uh, pivot to the more modern issues that we're going to be talking about and that we're already talking about, they're still doing, they're still using this to their advantage on racial grounds. I mean, we talked about how the Jim Crow laws and the Southern Confederates and the KKK were all Democrat organizations. Now we have Democrats using these same things in order to gain power over uh, black Americans. That's that's how I feel that that it is. I mean, they think that they can compare the filibuster to Jim Crow, and they think that. I mean, I, I can't think of another reason why they would do this. They think that black Americans are so stupid that they're going to hear that 
and they're going to believe that it's in any way similar and they're going to have an emotional reaction and say, oh, no, not Jim Crow again. Right. I must vote for Democrats, right. you know, well, and it's it's the soft bigotry of low expectations, which we spoke about last week on the racism episode. But it well, is so ridiculous. Yeah. It's an insult to history. It's an insult to black Americans. It's an insult to the Republicans of this era who fought against it and fought to overcome these things. It's an insult to everybody, and, and it's a shame. And as we, we had clips last week in the racism episode where Joe Biden, when he was running for re-election with Barack Obama to a black audience, said, they're going to put you back in chains. He said that. I'm not making that up. He said that. We played the clip for you. You know, he said when he ran for election against Donald Trump uh, that, you know, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. I mean, that's that's the message coming from the Democratic Party. Now, let's get to what happened in Georgia here. And Georgia's the first of probably several states because you had changes made to election laws prior to the 2020 election. Uh, The excuse given was that because we're in COVID, we're in a pandemic, we've got to loosen the restrictions here a little bit. Uh, They did it outside of the legislative process in many of these states. And state legislatures, believe it or not, think they ought to have a role in how their state elections are conducted. Yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. Right. So the Georgia state election law was the first one. It was signed by the governor. And so I went online and it's like, okay, let's find out what the truth is. And of course, uh, the CNNs, the MSNBCs of the world, mm-hmm. uh, they're all saying that it's a relic of Jim Crow. They're, they're trying to fuel the racism deal. And Fox News is what Fox News is. So if, if you want to be fair and balanced, I looked for an umpire, somebody who doesn't have a stake in it. I told Kurt this, and I think you rolled your eyes. Uh, but the BBC site, they mm-hmm. have a reality check on the BBC. I, w- I, I didn't roll my eyes. I was surprised, actually. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to take this from the BBC's perspective. They asked several questions about the Georgia law. Will voting hours be restricted? President Biden has said, what I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. It's sick. Deciding that you're going to end voting at 5 o'clock when working people are just getting off work. But it's not the case that voting has to finish at 5. The law allows counties to set voting hours anywhere between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., as was the case previously. The new law does lay out the hours that are required as a minimum on Election Day saying voting shall be conducted beginning at 9 a.m. and ending at 5 p.m. as opposed to normal business hours stated in the old law. But normal business hours are widely interpreted as 9 to 5 anyway, so the practical impact of this change is negligible. Let's stop there. So two things, just to reiterate what Dale just said. The first thing is that it's not 5 o'clock. It's up to 7 o'clock, and most counties are allowing voting up to seven o'clock. If you live in Jackson County, Missouri, and you're listening to this, you can vote until 7 p.m. in Jackson County, Missouri. It's the same exact time frame as it is in this new law in Georgia. Second thing is that it's no change. There is no change from the previous law for voting hours. It's a redefinition and a refocusing of how it's going to be determined what the hours are, but there's no change in the hours. Jim Crow on steroids. Yes. Will there be fewer drop boxes? Drop boxes allow voters to submit their ballots early into locked containers rather than relying on sending them in via post or standing in long lines on Election Day. Democrats say the new law reduces the number of these boxes, making it harder to vote. There will be fewer in the forthcoming elections, but this needs to be put in context. Prior to the 2020 election, now remember, the uh, drop boxes became a big deal because of COVID. Drop boxes weren't even used in Georgia. They were brought in as part of the COVID plan. The new law does significantly reduce the number of drop boxes from the 2020 level. 
For example, Fulton County, the biggest county in Georgia, says it will go down from 38 to 8 drop boxes. The new law also means the boxes will be held in buildings and can only be accessed in the hours that early voting is allowed, rather than 24 hours a day, as was the case in 2020. But Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says people act like we're taking something away. It never existed until the pandemic. It was done by emergency rule, not by legislative action. Although the new law reduces the amount of drop boxes across Georgia compared with the last election cycle, it does make them a permanent feature in future elections in that state. Yeah, a couple points there, too. The point that Governor Kemp made at the end there and that you made last week, these changes that were made for COVID in the 2020 election were not done through the legislative process in the state. It was the drop boxes were implemented by emergency rule. That means outside of the normal legislative process in the state of Georgia. That in itself is a problem. That in itself should not have happened. So now we're scaling it back a little bit from where it was, which was way too much due to the uh, illegitimate action, you know, not through the legislative uh, process in Georgia. Now they are using the legislative process to scale that back a little bit from where it was during COVID, but you still have more drop boxes now than there were pre-COVID. All right. And uh, the Democrats, by the way, are trying to jam through in this period before they think they're going to lose the House and or the Senate in 2022, H.R. 1 and S.R. 1, uh, which basically would federalize election law. I think that's unconstitutional anyway. Oh, yeah. Uh, And we'll see a court case on that if that does get through. I don't think it will because I think Manchin is a Democrat who actually understands the Constitution and will support it. We'll see. Uh, Can early votes be cast on a Sunday? This is the BBC review of the Georgia law. One of the most controversial elements of the bill initially proposed by Republicans was the elimination of Sunday early voting. Sunday voting, especially important for black worshipers in Georgia, a strongly Democratic voting bloc, with churchgoers often encouraged to vote after Sunday services with initiatives known as Souls to the Polls. Democrat Senate Leader Chuck Schumer said Republicans recently passed a bill to eliminate early voting on Sunday. But this element of the bill was not passed, and Republicans backtracked following criticism. The final bill allows two days of early Sunday voting, which is now formally signed into that law. An additional day of mandatory Saturday early voting has also been added. So Schumer is lying about that. Yeah, so that's just a straight-up lie-slash-mischaracterization of the law. Unless you're watching MSNBC. Um, Are people banned from giving water to voters? That is one of the biggies. That Mm -hmm. was where Biden basically um, uh, camped out. Right. Jim Crow on steroids here. In criticism of the provision, which bans some people from handing out food or water to voters within a certain distance of polling sites. It's true that the rules on this have been tightened. Republicans say the move limits potential interference before people cast their ballots. In previous elections, voting rights groups have often given out supplies to people standing in long lines at voting locations, which are a feature in U.S. election. Long waits are more common in areas with the larger black population, often due to fewer polling stations and other barriers to voting. But Republicans have pushed back on claims that the new law criminalizes giving water to voters. Although poll workers are still allowed to give away water, other people will have to follow certain restrictions under the new regulations. The law makes it an offense to give away water or food within 150 feet of a polling place or within 25 feet of any voter in line. Violations can be punishable by a year in jail up to a $1,000 fine. Here's the solution to that. The uh, long voting lines uh, in larger back black population areas, they run Fulton County. The, the black folks right. run Fulton County. They have right. a black mayor. They have a black legislature. Black, dem- black Democrats run yeah. the county. Exactly. To be more specific. Have more polling yeah. places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that hard? 
Yeah, I mean, it goes back to uh, the the issue that we're seeing in our inner in our inner cities generally. You know, um, they they keep talking about like Baltimore and Chicago and all these places. Right. You know, these places have been run by Democrats and more often than not, black Democrats for for decades. So, I mean, you're barking up the wrong tree, first of all. And yeah, the the water issue. I mean, are, are, is that really like where we're gonna hang our hat? You know, and say that this is Jim Crow? First of all. There's a point that they do that, right? It's so that people who are activists, right. who are who are working for a campaign or who are involved in uh, a, a certain cause, can't come up to you and try and influence your vote. That's what they're trying to stop. And we see that again, just comparing to Jackson County, where I go vote um, in Kansas City, you can't give out anything. You can't give out a flyer if right. you're within a certain distance you of the building. We talked feet. about this right. last week, you know, right. so this is totally uncontroversial. Like bring your own freaking water. Is it really that hard? You know, I mean, if you need water, bring your own water. They're not yeah. supposed to hand out water. It's not that big of a deal. I think it's just totally ridiculous. And when I go vote, I've already made up my mind. I think most people have made up their mind. But think about it in practice. If you had a big group of people and all of a sudden this big truck pulls up with like lots of water and some food and some hot right. dogs, and it's like, hey, don't forget the Democrats gave you a hot dog. Right. Democrats gave you a water bottle. Right. You right. know, go in there and vote Democrat. Right. I mean, is that bias? I think it yes, is. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So uh, is this Jim Crow on steroids or Jim Eagle or whatever the president said? I don't know. But this has been a very you – know, you asked me if we were going to have enough to fill a podcast. Yeah. Well, I wanted to add one more thing, add too, Add one if more I thing. Okay, so just to, to wrap it up because we're, we're going a little bit long on this episode, but – we talked a little bit last week about the MLB decision to move out of Atlanta right. to Colorado based on the idea that this voting law is a relic of Jim Crow. It's Jim Crow on steroids. It's these things. I hope that what we've done in this episode is, number one, we've shown you what Jim Crow actually was. Okay. We've shown you the the terrible laws that actually were in place, instituted and protected by disproportionately Democrats. And we've shown you this Georgia law, which is nothing like that, which is very standard, which has, you know, been shared by many other states, including where we live, that has many of the same laws. They took the MLB All-Star Game out of Georgia and they moved it to Colorado, a state that is much whiter than Georgia, requires voter, voter ID in Colorado, and has many uh, stricter voting laws related to early voting and things like this, the things that are uh, relevant to the Georgia law. So it's an, an, the whole thing is a lie. You are being used. You are being manipulated. The same ideology, the same party that, ha that in the past instituted these terrible racist laws is now, again, in a different way, granted in a, in a less bad way for sure, but they are still using race to control people. They're still using obsessing over the past obsessing over jim crow and obsessing over the fact that they don't think that black people are can be independent and think for themselves to control the population and to control the narrative they're using race to divide us and i think the whole thing i want you to come out of this with is let's stop let's stop giving in to division here Let's come together as a country where we have problems let's solve those problems in a real way and and let's remove race from the conversation. Uh, let's get back to the words of Martin Luther King. I always come back to that because I try and live that in my life, Kurt. You know, I don't judge people by the color of their skin. I judge them by the content of their character. Right. That's the difference. And Democrats, you need to be saying that. You need to stop saying stuff like Jim Crow on steroids and 
and uh, Jim Eagle. I don't even. I still don't even know what that means. <laughs> but hopefully, this has helped because our goal on this podcast is to bring us closer together, not further apart. Uh, like the song says, "Undivided." This is Dale Carter's America. The views expressed on Dale Carter's America are Dale's and Kurt Wheeler's. They do not necessarily reflect the views of KFKF or Steel City Media. Comments can be sent to dalec at kfkf.com. Thanks for listening. Check back every week for new episodes.